Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park and also not that. My name's Ryan Rogers and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 9, Skeleton, recorded here in the morning on April 11th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. You're listening to Snail's Late Bloomer, and the outro today is Grow Old or Don't. Thanks again to Snail and Christoph Oaks for the use of his music. You can find his album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And the track Late Bloomer is my favorite track off that album. I can't get enough of it. We have lots of corrections today. Uh, uh, specifically two corrections from the last episode. I kept calling Norman Atherton William Atherton in the last episode because it was off the cuff instead of prepared. That was my mistake. Hammond's original fundraising partner was Norman Atherton. Dr. Henry Wu worked for Norm in Atherton Labs, and Norm had the pygmy elephant that Hammond did all the fundraising with. William Atherton, on the other hand, is the name of the guy from the Environmental Protection Agency, famous for causing the New York City Marshmallow Man incident of 1986, after pulling the plug on the Ghostbusters ghost containment unit, obviously. We agreed that the unknown animals traveling in straight lines across Costa Rica were escaping the lysine contingency by eating corn, but more specifically, they're eating agama beans and soy, and sometimes chickens, which Grant somehow knows are foods rich in lysine, and that was on page 399. And while I suggested that there wasn't quite enough detail given to say they were conclusively velociraptors, Gutierrez suggests that the animals are moving in a straight line like an arrow, as if they're migrating. And the only animal in the book connected to migrating is... The Velociraptors. So, Justin was definitely onto something, and I'm buying what he is selling. And finally, in the textual analysis, I said that Grant and his team had adopted the teepees used by the Utes instead of the fancy tents, but the book is pretty specific that it was the Blackfoot that he was using the teepees of. I also said that the Utes used the teepees in Montana, but the book clearly outlines that it's Blackfoot territory, and they embraced the three-pole style from the Blackfoot, choosing it over the four-pole style of the Sioux. I have the Utes in my head after reading Crichton's Dragon Teeth, perhaps, or maybe they're still stuck in my head from Cannibal the Musical. But nonetheless, the novel clearly outlines that they're adopting the Blackfoot teepee style, and I couldn't have been more wrong. Also, we adopted an estimated construction start date of January 1st, 1987 at Isla Nublar. Hammond in this chapter, on page 46, tells us construction began, quote, 30 months ago. And 30 months prior to August 1989 brings us to February 1987, which is astonishingly close to our guesstimate. So good for us, but also, let's agree to readjust our premise that construction began in February 1987, not January, now that we can be more accurate. So I stand corrected. In Dinosaur News, I've got another article from yesteryear to share in this episode. I kind of liked digging back into history to find dinosaur news that was relevant to the episode. And unless I get some complaints, is this thing on? I'm going to roll with it. From October 12th, 2016, the journal Nature published the article, Fossil Evidence of the Avian Vocal Organ from the Mesozoic. The paper says, from complex songs to simple honks, birds produce sounds using a unique vocal organ called the syrinx where vocal folds or membranes attached to modified mineralized rings vibrate to produce sounds. The syrinx is the avian version of the mammalian larynx, or voice box. This is the thing that helps us make noises, and syringeal components are uncommon in the fossil record. And when they are found, they're relatively modern in dinosaur terms. 
The few reported fossilized parts of the syrinx are known from the Pleistocene and Holocene eras, only about 2.5 million years ago to present, astonishingly young compared to the Mesozoic Age that ended 65 million years ago. And there's a singular specimen known from the Eocene, a time that came after the dinosaurs ending about 23 million years ago. But this paper describes the first Mesozoic-aged syrinx that was preserved in three dimensions in a specimen from the late Cretaceous of Antarctica. It was found along with cranial and postcranial remains in a new avian species, Vegavis aiei, I-A-A-I, however you pronounce that, thanks. But it's definitely Vegavis. Enhanced contrast X-ray computed tomography, or CT scans, of the syrinx structure in 12 extant non-passerine birds, as well as CT imaging of Vegavis and Eocene syrinxes, informs both the reconstruction of ancestral states in birds and properties of the vocal organ in the extinct species, says the paper. The 2016 paper clearly shows the possibility for fossilization of the avian vocal organ, and it begs the question, why haven't these remains been found in other dinosaurs? It may indicate that a complex syrinx was a late rising feature in the evolution of birds, well after the origin of flight and respiratory innovations. What this means is, dinosaurs did not sound like songbirds, but they didn't have a larynx either, meaning they didn't sound like lions, tigers, or bears either. So what did they sound like? News item number two comes from the journal Historical Biology on June 30th, 2009, in a paper called Voices of the Past, a review of Paleozoic and Mesozoic animal sounds. It goes to great length to describe what the world sounded like at different stages of the deep past, but makes some comments on dinosaurs briefly. Quote, the lack of evidence of a syrinx in ornithodirins, that's a group containing all dinosauromorpha, which are dinosaurs and all the strange things that led up to formal dinosaurs, and pterosauromorpha, which are pterosaurs and all the strange things that led up to formal pterosaurs, outside of ornithothoraces, the formal birds with known syrinxes, which is a mouthful, will no doubt disappoint fans of roaring movie dinosaurs. That's a cute way of basically saying that their research hasn't gone on to explain how dinosaurs sounded, but rather eliminated a range of sounds that dinosaurs potentially could have made. As it's now concluded, they hadn't a syrinx or a larynx. The paper goes on to say, however, lack of ability to vocalize does not necessarily mean that such animals were silent altogether. Many extant reptiles communicate with each other and with potential predators by non-vocal acoustic means such as hissing, clapping their jaws together, grinding mandibles against upper jaws, rubbing scales together, or use of environmental materials like splashing against the water. Birds also use non-vocal acoustic means of communication such as hissing, bill clapping, stamping, and wing beating. Non-avian theropods with feathered wings may have beaten their wings in acoustic displays as extant birds often do. Sauropod dinosaurs of the family Diplodocidae, known from the upper Jurassic of North America and Africa, possessed a whip-like tail tip that could have produced a loud whip-like cracking sound for intraspecific communication or in response to predators. Whoosh! The morphology of the nasal passage in Lamiosaurinae, a Laurasian clade of Upper Cretaceous Ornithischians, think like the Parasaurolophus in the Jurassic Park films, and as described by Jordan Mallon in episode 5 of this podcast, suggests a role in sonic resonation. However, resonation need not be for vocal sounds. Some extant snakes lack vocal cords but possess resonating chambers that emphasize the low frequencies of a hiss. The variety of visual display structures in pterosaurs and dinosaurs shows that visual communication was important to these animals. They may have therefore relied largely on visual means of communication. Extant precedent for such reliance is found among lizards in which non-chemical communication is primarily visual, despite their excellent hearing.
The discussion coming out of papers like these was that dinosaurs didn't roar like lions, tigers, or bears, and didn't vocalize like modern songbirds, but rather, likely, had vocalizations similar to more primitive avian ancestors or pre-passerine species like fowl, pheasants, and chickens or ducks. But put differently, by eliminating a syrinx and a larynx deduction suggested, they likely emitted noises ranging from hissing, rumbling, clucking, and quacking. These updates were hilariously capped by Conan O'Brien's late-night program on TBS. Researchers are now saying dinosaurs didn't roar, but instead they quacked like ducks. This is, yes, this is a real story. They're now saying they quacked like ducks, didn't roar. Well, since uh, this news broke, the producers of Jurassic Park have updated the movie to reflect the new scientific findings. Check it out. But hey, let's not let scientific discovery hamper how much fun we have with dinosaur sounds. In fact, let's revel in the award-winning audio engineering from Jurassic Park that celebrated the fictional genetic engineering in Jurassic Park with this week's very special guest. Yeah, now that I'm all cardiganed up, yeah, I feel better. <laughs> you look very comfortable. Wait, with me for some fun this episode is a songwriter, private instructor at ShapesGuitarLessons.com, host of the Trivia Schmivia Online Trivia League, as well as a foreign film star, a cowboy in a cardigan, and he does whatever a spider pig does. It's Jamie Rayum. Hello. Good <laughs> we, morning. Good morning. We met while I was performing espionage inside a rhinoceros-looking surveillance vehicle, but inconveniently, once the air conditioning failed and I removed my clothes due to the incredible heat and the hatch got stuck, I had to crawl out of the animatronic rhino's anus and emerge from it looking like a sweaty newborn. And then I met Jamie, who was a, a tourist and came by and took my naked picture. And we've been exchanging Christmas cards ever since, so... I still That's have your- true. I was actually... I was walking somewhere and I had like three rolls of paper towels in my hands and I was like I serve a purpose here <laughs> we keep your Christmas card on the fridge all years and we don't do that for just anybody nice. <laughs> so Jamie Homemade. is one of uh, the few guests who has actually raised their hand to be on the podcast and it did not have to uh, to drag kick and screaming to be here uh, so that's that's amazing <laughs> what made you want to join me on a podcast about Jurassic Park I haven't had a chance to talk to you in a long time. It sounded really interesting, and I love it when uh, old friends try new things. And this sounded very interesting because I come from the perspective of being there in 93 when it was released Mm -hmm. as a movie, Jurassic Park. And you are very much about uh, the book or not about the book, (laughs) Uh, not necessarily in, in the podcast. So I figured since I have a background and a foreground in uh, writing and producing music that I could offer something by talking about the sound design. Mm-hmm. So, so that is, that is my, my lane today in this uh, series of continuing interviews about <laughs> something that you care about quite a bit, which is really cool. And I think a lot of people share in, in appreciating Jurassic Park for what it was. So you were there in 93. How did you first come into seeing it for the first time and, and what were your observations then? It was a gigantic hype machine yeah. to get every everybody excited. Like I don't, you know, that was, it was a long time ago. It was 14. 
but I definitely remember being super, super excited and primed by commercials and all that stuff to go see it. I believe I went to the Capitol Theater in Chatham, Ontario to see it, which is, it's it's interesting because 93, the Capitol Theater uh, cinema was, it was what you would expect in 1993. And not a lot of bells and whistles, a really old school feeling kind of dead room sound wise. There wasn't a lot of reverberation or anything. It was like a classic cinema. And I just remember seeing like the skin of the dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and just being like, this is some different level of commitment that they've made to like how this looks. Cause this is just incredible. Yeah. And obviously the sound for Jurassic Park plays such an incredible role, which I didn't really realize until I rewatched Jurassic Park with Tash last night. What an incredible feat for 1993. Mm-hmm. And it kind of brings me like last October when things were briefly okay in Toronto to go out, we went out for a, a good friend's birthday party and she had rented an old theater that reminded me a lot of okay. the Jurassic Park experience back in 93. It was this downtown Toronto theater that let you rent out an entire theater to have a birthday party with friends, like a close group of friends that you trusted or whatever okay. in this in situation. In your bubble, right, sure. <laughs> And we went to see Dune. Mm-hmm. And I came away from that experience kind of feeling the same way that I did after seeing Jurassic Park in 93, because there wasn't a lot of bells and whistles to this theater. It was pretty meat and potatoes for the Toronto experience that pre-pandemic was very luxurious mm. at times. This was you sat down. It was like another dead old room and you watched it and there wasn't surround sound or crazy, crazy audio going on. It was just the movie. And I came away from that movie thinking, my God, this is like a next level audio sound design experience. Again, it was really, really interesting because I think Dune is a fantastic film, but it's such a different film. It's like a very, very sound first film. And so is Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, strangely enough, lets sound do a lot of the heavy lifting with regards to introducing you to characters. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously the dinosaur characters is what I'm referring to. Drawing those two uh, comparisons between like films that came out so far from one another, but still made you feel the same way. Yeah. I was definitely taken back last night on our, not tiny, but like our 50 inch TV or whatever (laughs) in our living room, seeing the detail that they put into those animals. My favorite scene has always been, the one uh, when the Velociraptor has the GTCs against its skin. Yeah. that Those lit up whatever lab that they were in at that point in time. And it was like, my God, how did you do that? That is so cool. Yeah. You know, as a 14-year-old kid wondering about how movies are put together. And especially at that point in time where things kind of flipped for our generation where there was this quantum leap into CGI mm-hmm. in the early 90s that didn't really... That was like, that wasn't Star Wars stuff. That was like Jurassic Park, I really do think has this like little, little space that it occupies where it was like the next leap into what the technology was allowing with regards to CGI. Mm. I know that when they were putting it together that there was the conversation between maybe we'll have to do stop motion 
compared to can CGI be effective? Like it had to pull it off. And if it doesn't work, we're not going to use it. And it did. It did work. So they, they went with it. But they were like, it was still a great uncertainty whether or not that was going to pull the illusion, successfully execute the magic trick, right? And it, but yeah. it, they Can did you it. imagine it being stop motion? <laughs> I like stop like, motion. I, it is hard yeah, to imagine. Me too. It is hard to imagine. Yes. Just an incredible detail that they pulled off with those animals. I will say the night scenes don't hold up. You can tell that those those images of the dinosaurs are like slightly off with mm-hmm. regards to their lighting. Yeah. The daytime scenes are just like yeah. so, so incredible to look at. Like, again, it came from 93. It was the first real big jump into this. And the daylight stuff is just so, so good. Yeah. And I think that comes with uh, being able to light practical effects. So like yep. everything's on the same stage versus the, I mean, when people pull it off, uh, successfully in modern film where they're just on a green screen and the lighting matches with the, with the background and everything, that is a real accomplishment because if it doesn't work, it, it looks like when you've got, you know, a rheumatitis in your eye or something. Like it's just a mm-hmm. different different tone altogether. Um, yep. Anyhow, yeah, the practical effects really, really shone. And you're right, it, that first Brachiosaur scene, when you first see it and everybody's blown away, everybody's blown away the whole not a dry in the house thing uh, mm-hmm. that's the proof of concept like we're going to make this park work or we're going to make this film work it all pays off in that one moment and then you're like okay what are we getting into because you're right at the beginning of the film they're being dodgy about showing the dinosaurs right that that opening crate scene where you're like okay like we're just going to get like flashes of its eye or something like we're going to get more than that, right? Well, that's so old-timey Hollywood too, right? Yeah. It's like when, uh, I don't mean to jump into another franchise or anything, but it's like comparing the Michael Keaton Batman, mm-hmm. the old-timey Hollywood Batman, mm-hmm. where it's like got all this these elements of, especially within the score, um, just old. It feels like classic. And then you skip ahead to The Dark Knight. That is like a different beast altogether, yeah. right? Like Jurassic Park, I think, has a lot of those old relics from old classic Hollywood still within it, too. And I think there's a when I watched it last night, there was definitely like this is for 93 was so far advanced, but it still brought that like everything we do. We want it to sound like Star Wars kind of vibe with Mm -hmm. the musical treatment in the background, all strings and John Williams maybe could have wrote this or whatever. I don't know. I I prefer a more modern take on the score. Personally, myself, I think that strings in that that genre of sound, I don't know if it works so well with a film that is very dark. Yeah. Rewatching it, yeah. I was like, okay, I remember that the guy got scooped up from the toilet yeah. in the outhouse. Okay, that's dark. Yeah, yeah, but somebody had to get scooped up eventually. Like you said in the in the intro scene, what are they gonna do? Give you like a little shot of the eye? That's old classic. Yeah. That reminded me of, of uh Gremlins. Okay, yeah. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Don't let them see it. Don't let them see it. Like the the mystery of what's in the box, mm-hmm. building tension. I thought that was really cool. And I didn't mind the raptor scene because it was like, oh, man, what are they going to look like? Because Jurassic Park, it's like, oh, I just want to see these dinosaurs. When that worker gets pulled into the box, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're paying attention. You want to see that little glimpse of an eye or whatever. And then when they finally, like, give you the first taste and it's the giant 
larger than life, would you say Brachiosaurus? Yeah, yeah. It's just like, oh my God, you can see it in the daylight. Again, it's you see them for the first time in well-lit daylight, mm-hmm. that kind of a scene. Um, I don't know. It was just, it was very, it, it captured, uh, it captured little Jamie from 1993. Again, I was like, oh man. Oh yeah? What an impression that made when I first saw it on the big screen. Yeah, right on. You make a good point about how the films, maybe they pull on the string section when they're doing their score to really draw out the tension. And you feel it kind of in your in your sternum, the strings. But had they made this film, you know, 10 years earlier, it would have been like a synthesizer through the whole thing. So that would have been a very that interesting... Is, that is a true... <laughs> <laughs> Can you that imagine? That is true. <laughs> uh, I, I think going back to the example of Dune again, Dune yeah. did something where they were trying to make it sound like a, a different culture. Mm-hmm. And I think based on where... Uh, this was shot, which was uh, fictitiously Costa Rica, off of the yeah, west, right. the west coast of Costa Rica. What's the name of the island? Trivia question. Isla Nublar, the Cloud Island. Yeah, yeah. I knew that you would know that. Okay. So, yeah, I think that they could have done something musically that was a little less traditional in the sense of like a Hollywood blockbuster. I think they could have done something mm-hmm. that was, again, more rooted in the culture of where this was going down. Right on. Um, That's a good point. That's but, a great point. You know, I didn't, I didn't make the movie. I only purchased a ticket to see it, right? So <laughs> That makes a really interesting point. What an interesting choice that would have been, too, to make it feel a little bit more um, of its own world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because, you know, and I don't mean to like rip on it again, but those strings, that is just, that's expensive, right? That's expensive <laughs> stuff. And what they were dealing with was the narcissism of an old man who really wasn't a very nice character. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I was so frustrated at uh, Hammond. Yeah. Yeah, man. What what a toolbox. Yeah. They've... Just going through a couple of like reviews of, of the plot of this and everything after watching the movie, just to make sure that I, you know, was fresh for, for this conversation with you. Like his grandkids arrive the day or two after somebody dies mm-hmm. because they can't control the animals yet. And then right away, he sends them on a tour that from what I looked at, was that like the first tour? That was the first tour that they did for people, like as a test. Yeah. That, and it's his own grandkids. Yeah. That isn't, yeah, it, it is peculiar, but it raises the stakes. I mean, it's good. Crichton seems to. <laughs> yes, it does. Crichton seems to stick these kids in there. I guess so. You, I mean, maybe because it's, and Spielberg does it too. Somebody mentioned before we were talking how this really is uh, Spielberg channeling a bit of E.T. when he builds this. So you, you have the mm-hmm. children. And so a, a youthful Jamie can watch this and maybe identify with the kids and say, I, I could be that kid that's in this scene that's having a dinosaur put its face through an entire car to get me or something like that, Where you, whereas an adult can relate with the others. So there's characters on all different levels that you can say, ah, I could be the grandfather that has his grandkids uh, in jeopardy, or I could be the kid itself, themselves, uh, who, who are having to run through a kitchen and the ingenuity of a child trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The I, mirror scene where she's trying to pull the door down of uh, the low kitchen cupboard or whatever mm. storage space, that is still one of my favorite scenes. You know from what? The movie. I, have you seen The Shining? A uh, long time ago, yes. I only watched it um, a couple years ago. I don't know. I just had never had the opportunity to see it. And finally it comes up. And, and there is... A, 
it's not a long scene and you can't even really find it on YouTube because uh, it just doesn't really mean much to the overall film. Like it's not a screen cap sort of moment, but there's a scene where Jack is pursuing uh, somebody in, in the, throughout the mansion uh, that, that the, the Shining is hosted in and he's going through a kitchen and literally he's dragging something behind his feet and he's kind of, he's all crazed and he's, uh, per, you know, going, he is the Velociraptor. He goes through the kitchen yep. and that same scene is used as a, as a dupe. And then I think he gets locked into a pantry. It's mm-hmm. almost, almost exactly the same as in, yeah. the, in, uh, the Spielbergs. And it's, I guess it's called an homage, but it, it's borderline mm-hmm. plagiarism because it, it doesn't really, you kind of, in an homage, need to acknowledge what you were referencing. Yeah, yeah. Beyond yeah. just copying it. Like, there has to be yeah. some tip of the cap saying, <laughs> uh, this, you know, you have to wink to the camera just enough to say, I'm not stealing this, I'm, I'm tr- giving tribute to the thing that I appreciate. And so Kubrick's portrayal of that horrifying, really, really important moment in The Shining, where Jack finally loses it. Can you imagine a guy just losing it? Somebody you love, you trust, is chasing you because he's just gone deranged with an axe. That's horrifying. And Shelley Duvall is amazing in that. And in this scene, it's that exact same horror. And in any case, you're right, it's a wicked scene. It's amazing. Uh, Spielberg does an amazing job. It's captured on film amazing. Uh, I was just a little disappointed when I caught The Shining. I was like, oh, he kind of stole all that. Yeah, it's <laughs> like uh, listening to old blues and then going, oh, how many Led Zeppelin songs are on this record? Uh, <laughs> and going, oh, wait, 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 wait. Opposite way around. Yeah, Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, tipping the hat to uh, influences that mm-hmm. they lift it is the word that they always use so you could say that steven spielberg lifted that scene from mm-hmm. the shining well we'll get this Ze- um, we'll get the zeppelin in a second i promise you uh what i love about right. some of this sound design is that uh you that you said that the sound design does a good job doing the heavy lifting in a lot of respects with this film and that's important because uh during the tyrannosaur attack and somewhat with some of the other scenes there isn't a big you know orca- orchestral uh, score in the background you have just the kids in the scene the just the tyrannosaur attack is just the dinosaur the only sounds are rain hitting their like rooftops in the bushes and the dinosaur walking around and they let that sound yep. design tell the story and i think that's amazing. you know there's no musical clues telling you oh how should you feel or drawing out the suspense it's literally just letting it sit there on top of you and that's amazing and so yeah it, Maybe you can talk a little bit more about how did you feel about all of that when when uh, seeing it again just last night? It really makes a great impression. Oh, it does. I was 14, like I said, in 1993 when I saw the film. I had just started playing guitar that year, so I had no studio experience. Mm-hmm. That was still probably six years away. So I didn't know anything about the actual putting together sound mm-hmm. for anything. I just knew that I had something I could make sound with. So... As the years went by into the 2000s, playing a lot, starting to record a lot, I was completely sucked into uh, the fascinating uh, world of layering sounds, Mm -hmm. choosing the pan. Is it left? Is it right? Is it going to move? Are we going to automate this so it moves side to side? Are we going to do ping pong delay? Are we going to do this, that, the other thing? Uh, doubling sounds because everything about a sound recording is like a, a bunch of illusions yeah. put together. So when I looked up a couple of videos about the specific guy, Gary Rydstrom, I believe is his name that did the actual uh, sound design for the movie. He won the awards for it. Yeah. He's the yeah, guy. He went, he went through 
Gary Rydstrom is his name up here at the top of my list. He went through and actually uh, there's two videos of him talking about the Velociraptor treatment mm -hmm. and the T-Rex treatment. So he actually went through and said what he used for certain things. I don't know if you've seen this before, but I'll go over a couple of them. The first booms when you see the ripples, uh, the sound waves in the glass of water, the mm -hmm. cup of water in the car. He said, those were sonic booms. When I was younger and I was uh, looking into this stuff and talking to people about this stuff, I heard that they actually tied a bass string below the Jeep mm -hmm. or uh, not the Jeep, the electric vehicle. Um, and the only way that they could get those pure ripples in the glass yeah. was by striking the string underneath. I was like, that is fascinating. Yeah. Who, who would think about tying a bass string to a vehicle? Now, I don't know if this is true because he didn't say anything about this in the actual interview. He called the footsteps sonic booms. Right. Well, they could have got so the, I, uh, the, used the string for the visual and then not used the audio at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, the sonic booms. I don't know specifically what he means. If that's a recording of a sonic boom, or if it's just like him pressing a key on a keyboard, or it's like <laughs> a, a bass drop or something. I don't know about that. Uh, also, what they used for the footsteps was redwood falling. Can you imagine, eh? So literally, like pieces of a tree falling to a ground. Huge, that they huge recorded. trunks. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah. I mean, redwoods are not uh, known to be poplars or birches they redwoods are known yeah, to be yeah. significant pieces of uh of wood <laughs> so he explained getting into the actual sound of the t-rex what he kind of put together so this is a huge frankenstein of a project to mm -hmm. find a a texture and a timbre and a a vibe and they used not necessarily like whale song but the blowhole sound for breathing yeah something like that yeah uh the alligator because they have such a low frequency rumble right which makes a lot of sense it sounds like that big empty trunk of uh skin that's doing that like uh up into the nostril snarl that you can do mm -hmm. um if you're into voices and stuff like that uh the lion for attack so a lion's roar for attack right. to blend in with that. A walrus, because that again is like a lot of low end. Sure, yeah. That is like a deeper kind of weird growl. And uh, the baby elephant scream. Yeah. They didn't find a whole lot of sounds from the elephants that were adults. And he said that the baby elephant scream he would use to put in that, that like shriek mm -hmm. of the T-Rex's attack. It was a scene that he described, and that, that's when he's getting, when the T-Rex is, her, she, I should say, is yeah. getting out of uh, the cables, out of the park, and meeting the cars. He said that was like a really good example of writing a scene for sound. Right. And I was like, man, that is like, that is so smart. And it's so true. Like I said, the heavy lifting is being done because you're trying to build tension. If it's a, a movie for kids, you're trying to build tension. And the easiest way is to do something that, you know, is loud and you don't know the origin of it. And as a kid, if you remember, I do, anything when I was little, anything that was like super, super loud and heavy, you just be like yeah. totally 
totally freaked out by because you just don't know you're a kid right Mm -hmm. so i think they did like an amazing job with that with regards to the velociraptors they used a tortoise for that strange barking sound that they made when they're calling to each other right an african crane a debarked dog right geese geese when you hear that a goose was yeah. used for the sound sample, you could immediately throughout the movie, you could point to it and go, that's a geese sound. Right. And it was perfect. I think the geese sound for the Velociraptor is like a match made in heaven. Right, right. Kind of like hissy, almost reptilian, like a snake. Yes. But at the same time, a bird, which is kind of, you know, what they turn into. A human vocal, one of his buddies came by and made like this crazy, weird sound with his mouth. They went back to the walrus. And again, they went to the dolphin for that. The worst sound for my ears listening back to it (laughs) yesterday was the high-pitched dolphin sound that the velociraptors make. I hate that. When they're running? Uh, I just, oh, I hate that so much. It sounds like their claws are scraping like a chalkboard or something. Mm -hmm. Everything else, two thumbs up. But that... (laughs) That dolphin sound is just the... Well, for what it's worth, maybe that's uh, by design because I don't think there's anything comforting about being pursued by a raptor. And and, uh, maybe it's just one of those things like, oh, imagine they did put nails on a chalkboard in there just to really, really make your teeth hurt while you're watching the the film. Yeah, yeah. so you're describing a physical reaction to a sound. And that is, I think they went really, really hard in the paint with this sort of treatment. And that's why it works so well. Hard in the paint, such a classic Jamie basketball metaphor. Oh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> you got to be posterizing everybody when you're. <laughs> oh, the okay. So the most posterizable moment of the film when the when the T Rex steadily and quietly, ninja like, makes his way into the uh, display. The visitor room? center's front foyer. Right? The visitor center, yeah. yeah. Foyer um, for the Americans out there. <laughs> Uh, when, when he does, when she does the roar and then the banner falls yes, down, yes, yes. that's the, that's the worst posterizable <laughs> moment of the film. I've, I've found that to be like, so Hollywood cheese, like even in 93. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that back then too. I have to be honest. I was like, why is there a banner? It's like too perfect. Yeah. Like in a, in a moment of complete and utter chaos and craziness, this fluttering banner perfectly in front of the T-Rex is just like, nah, nah, I could do without that. That's gotta be Spielberg embracing the spectacle of it all. Like this is the moment where the, the T-Rex reveals himself or herself to be the hero. And they come and save the day with that deus ex machina uh, swoop through where everything seems to be lost. And then you're, you're saved by some act of God, basically. <laughs> and uh, and then, yes, you get the, when dinosaurs ruled the earth, like, hey, that's me. I'm ruling the earth right now. And then yeah. <laughs> you get the, he mugs, or she mugs for the camera. She gives a big roar one last time. And then, I mean, it's credits rolling in, in the seconds after that, so... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Overall, a fantastic watch again. You asked me about sound design. I, I love talking about that stuff. Uh, plot holes. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, like continuity issues in the helicopter on the way. There, there, there's just a bunch of stuff in the script. 
how the the movie was actually executed where you like kind of shake your head and go what but i mean it's just it's for the fun of it it's entertainment mm-hmm. i know so. uh, with the t- the tortoise sounds that they use for the velociraptor there have been there was a bunch of headlines that came out at some point i guess sometime since the internet came around i guess i couldn't narrow it down any further but uh it was revealed that the, the sounds the tortoises were making, they were making uh, while they were mating. And so that's a, the tortoise mating sound, that... <laughs> if you can believe that. We've all been there. You know? it's, uh, it's something that uh, we all can relate to a little bit. So Gary Rydstrom hears that and he's, he finds inspiration. He goes, you know what? I'm going to turn that into uh, a velociraptor when he needs help. He's gonna make that sound, and, and, uh, <laughs> and support will come to to <laughs> will come racing up to to to, to uh, save the day. So it begs the question: when when you're writing a new song or doing some audio engineering, what species of mating sounds do you turn to for inspiration? Oh boy! Well, where can I start? We talk about foreign film story. We talk about cowboys and cardigans. <laughs> well, uh, whatever has the best answer. Um, a foreign film star was more cinematic. Mm-hmm. I did try a bunch of uh, sound design stuff. Nothing involving an animal, uh, and I'm being I'm being serious about that. Like we didn't take an animal and record it for any purpose. I actually went into the studio back in 2006 when we were finishing up our record, "Dim the Lights and Leave for a Better Place," and I played um, a, a kitchen pot with my fingertips oh yeah i just went around just went around the inside of it i wanted to just have something that sounded like it was like uh kind of a a rotating that's really cool uh for another tune um on top of that it it was just an album kicker right so it was like a minute 40 of like art and Bailey came in and put backwards guitar on it. Okay. And it, it was just like, it was a match made in heaven. It was one of those things where it took like probably 15 minutes, but it just, it was such an interesting thing that we had created at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, another song called The Ones and Zeros of Digital Rain, I played Glasses of Water. Cool. Because I just wanted a different sound. And I am, when I'm in the studio, I want to capture the sound. I don't want samples. Yeah. At least, you know, back then it was. And now I have, like, a library of audio and samples through the program that I use where it's like, why aren't you using this stuff more? Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, I try to use it more. But back then I was trying to be, like, way more organic and just interesting with things that we had around us. Yeah. So... You can, only jam, you can only jam eight chords off of your guitar and make it sound so many different ways, right? So I can oh, see yeah, you yeah, build, sure. build some new sounds or interesting you know, inspiration to, to look for things around you that just make a cool... I know once in a while, geez, what is it? sometimes you just hear something and it wobbles or it makes like a... I don't know, you drop something against a lamp and it just makes a sound. You're like, oh, geez, I, that's, that would have been cool to, to have captured or something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, with my pedal board that I have now at this point in time, in 2022, like, I can make, like, anything. When <laughs> when I was when I was in uh, the Golden Eagles in 2009, uh, I tried for one of the guitar solos for the song See You Coming, I tried to make um, 
uh, sound happen out of like five or four or five different uh, takes so that it sounded like I was shooting a, a Star Wars gun, like sure. laser gun or right, whatever okay. those things are called. Yeah, so I remember in Star Wars, they hit like power lines, bang, right. bang, or whatever, to try to get that sound of the, the, of the gun. Yes. And so I used a bass synth and a tape echo delay or a digital delay, and then just a whole bunch of different layers to try to come up with that. So at the end of the guitar solo, you can hear like, whip, 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 shots. Okay. I always, you know, when you're in the studio, you can do li literally anything you want, especially if you're not playing live off the floor, mm -hmm. which we weren't. We were trying to put together, in all of those examples, we were trying to put together something of a creation, like a studio project, not, yeah. uh, not a live thing. For the song that was connected to that one that I described earlier called Safe Trip, uh, Beautiful Pulse, we had like 50 or 60 different layers of guitar and just weird sounds and we captured some radio from one of the amps after a take was over with yeah. and it went off into this thing where it was like we'd never heard this song before and it was literally just coming through the the amp so we had our producer marty back just continue to record we ended up like working that in to the outro of the song right before that uh super weird thing with the, the pots and pans and stuff and i mean it's magic like that in the studio that makes you want to go back and do it again because right. we had no idea that that was going to happen mm -hmm. and then you just kind of like run with what you're given and it becomes this moment it's like an incredible experience and when you get to like the number of like dealing with 50 40 60 things that you're mixing you got like a lot of opportunity for kind of like happy accidents to happen between yes. all the takes yes And that's that's where a sound comes from. It's not necessarily you sit down and play the same thing perfectly three right. times. All of that is just to make it sound good in the headphones and the speakers. If you record a guitar and it's just one guitar track, it sounds like a thin, quiet track. Mm -hmm. If you double that, it sounds like a completely different thing. And it has a lot more presence between the, uh, the cans. It's a fascinating science that I'm not a record producer in a studio or anything. I'm much more like a songwriter who comes in with ideas and then wants to get them recorded. But like the producer in me that has been developed since I started recording back in like 2000, like I've picked up all these tricks from working with all the different producers I've worked with. And it's just, it's such a fascinating area of work. And I think it's super underappreciated too. The sound design of uh, a film always seems to go somewhat unnoticed uh, compared to like who's in the film mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or whether the film is like a Marvel cinematic thing or a Spielberg production or this or that. The other thing is like sound design is like so, so important for the finished product of something. And um Tash and I are actually going to be watching like No Country for Old Men okay. soon. And I, I think that's the one where there isn't a whole lot of anything going on in the sound design. It could it's be pretty like, quiet, it, yeah. 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 So I'm fascinated to see something where it's like sound design overload to complete opposite minimalist yeah. kind of art piece i'm really excited to see that because i've wanted to see that film forever i have a really bad habit of wanting to see films <laughs> and then not, never actually making the time to see them i think yeah. and uh 
I gotta gotta change that. In that film, I think all of the the real impact just comes um, straight off of Tommy Lee Jones's face. That's about mm-hmm. it. It just makes noise for you. It's it's, <laughs> and he does that. He's yeah, fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um. So so I got I got a trivia question for you. Okay. Trivia show. Well, you go. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. I figured I'd I'd put some of these together. Just see how you do if you want to try a couple of them out. All right, my hands are on um, the screen, so I'm not Googling anything. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So when Hammond is talking to everybody when they first get to the island, yeah. he says he has another one down in what African country? He has another island. Is it? He's Mokai? got another another compound. Or or reserve is nature it, reserve or something? Is it Mozambique? No. Okay. It's Kenya. Kenya. All right. It's Kenya. Kenya is yeah. mentioned I in picked... the book. It's mentioned in the book. Okay. Cool. Because uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Like, since I haven't read the book, what worked and what was abandoned from the book that worked mm. that maybe they could have added. So they reference um, they reference Kenya. Uh, the Robert Muldoon character is the uh, the park designer, and he was based off of a, a a real life person who designed zoos and was like the the great white hunter. I think was what the was named in 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 air quotes. And that guy and I think Muldoon was supposed to have had. Um, experience in his past from large game reserves and stuff like that in Africa and Kenya. So from what I recall in the book that Kenya is mentioned with Muldoon specifically. I, but Hammond did not have a resort. He was going to build additional resorts. I want to say in the Seychelles and mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that correctly and another in Japan. And I think he had a design for a third park, but I don't remember where it was, but he did have plans to make uh, other parks. That's fascinating. It's so interesting. Obviously, you can't take the whole scope of a book mm-hmm. and make something because that was two hours last night. Solid. Yeah, that was a two-hour film last night, and for '93, I think that was pretty. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty long. If you did Dances with Wolves out in the '90s, people said, "Hey, come on now." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One guy did it, and they said, "No, no, no, we're not, we're not putting up with that. <laughs> we'll give you the award, but don't do that again." <laughs> yeah, because isn't the Batman like two two hours fifty six minutes? The new one. Oh. I don't know. I know the yeah, Spider Man. I think I read that. The, yeah, they're long now. The Star Wars, yeah. But the, you know, you gotta you gotta give people something to put their money on the theater now. People just don't go to see people. People would not go to see UHF. Not that they ever did, but <laughs> <laughs> an hour and a half movie uh, that's kind of goofy. People just don't go to the theaters any. Well, maybe they do, but not after the pandemic. I don't know. We'll see. Do you know who's playing Weird Al Yankovic in the new biopic that's being made about him? I saw that. I want to use his real name and not uh, his famous name. Daniel Radcliffe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Nice job. I don't know what to nice think job. about that, uh, but uh, I'm sure he'll be excellent for sure. Uh, what do they give the mathematician to calm him down after his uh, being ejected? Uh, or thrown into the outhouse by T-Rex. I don't remember what, what it was exactly, but he was uh, if he you'll was notice, yeah. his lines go from consistent to non-existent after the injury. I thought that was a, a really, really stark change in his character. So what did they actually give him to help him with the pain? He was supposed to be administered quite a bit of morphine. Was he not? There it is. All right, right on. Man, you got it. 
Nice job. In the book, the veterinarian administers all the morphine, not Ellie Sattler or whomever was given uh, the doses. She just she wanted to uh, administer some drugs. <laughs> I was like, I I did not catch that the first time I watched it way back when, and then when I heard that, I was like, she just gave him morphine. Yeah. Not what? nearly enough, I might add. I think it's... <laughs> <laughs> Give me some hole. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> Overall, very enjoyable watch again. Uh, like I said, my issues, and in, in, if you ask my wife, Tash, with movies is always like, oh, the music. Why are they doing music like this? But aside from that, and the fun little, you know, continuity problems and stuff like that, I, I think it was really really well put together yeah. film. And you can't, now the you, sequel, yeah. sequel, we did see like 75% of that probably uh, before Christmas. We just, we were sitting down and we're like, oh, this is on. I don't think I remember ever seeing this. Sequel's trash. It's the one where they make it to the mainland and they're having trouble containing the dinosaur in the mainland or whatever. Okay. I, I don't. I don't recall it. Was Are it they with, in California? I'm not with, really sure. Okay, so that would be the second one, right? Because there's, what, yeah. five now, almost six. Can you believe Holy it? Holy cow. Yeah? Yeah, the second one got a little uh, <clears throat> off script <laughs> when they were doing it. Jason takes Manhattan. Yeah. It's like, come on. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. I had a, my, my horror specialist was going, that's the whole idea with the, the genre. Is like, okay, I can avoid being attacked by dinosaurs in a park by just not going to the park. But if somebody brings the park to you, then suddenly yeah. Jason can take Manhattan. You don't have to go to Camp Crystal Lake. That's amazing. Well, I wanted to, to we're running out of time. I wanted to talk more about sampling and music. I wanted to talk specifically about like the Godzilla soundtrack that had, mm-hmm. um, there was samples of the Godzilla roar in, in, in the Green Day songs. There was Puff Daddy obviously sampling Led Zeppelin. Which we didn't get. Kashmir. Yeah, I told you we'd get back to Zeppelin. I wanted to talk about <laughs> all those different things, uh, but we're flat out of time. Would you come back again and do it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Amazing, absolutely. amazing, amazing. Well, guys, if you want to be on on Jamie's Christmas card list, <laughs> just make sure that you get naked in front of him as hot as you can, and and then you can strike up a conversation. That's how we always did it. That's what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> uh, be sure Jamie tell people where they can find you yep I put all of my original music up on YouTube uh, Jamie Riom official mm-hmm. or you can just type in Cowboys and Cardigans or Jamie Riom that's R-E-A-U-M-E mm-hmm. uh, you can find uh, if you're interested in trivia uh, I have a online trivia league that runs Wednesdays and Thursdays uh, you can find that at www.triviashmivia.com and then uh, if you want to fall in love with the guitar and you need a teacher, I run a private uh, guitar school in Toronto and I love it. Mm-hmm. And I have great students and uh, I just love it. So I also play once in a while. I perform live. So if you want to ever find me playing live, you can send me a direct message if you want in, on Instagram. It's just my name on Instagram or uh you know, drop a line or a DM at uh, Trivia Shmivia, mm-hmm. and uh, I'll get back to you. And for what it's worth, the live show was always a highlight of our week whenever we could go find Jamie back in college. Thanks. Yeah, really the best Thank time. you, thank you. And uh, thank you. for what it's worth, you must know a million people. I don't know how you do it, but like every person who walked in the door, you were able to, you knew them by name. It was incredible. 
no matter where you those were. Those are really good. Night. Those are really good times. I have to uh, I have to admit, I was very, very fortunate to meet a lot of uh, fun, smart, ambitious people and uh, other people that weren't ambitious. <laughs> but I, I had a great time singing for everybody. The pandemic came along and I went at one point in time a year without playing oh, September wow. to September. That was crazy. Yeah. That was a crazy, crazy thing. And then, you know, shows have started to trickle in. And the, the private school thing just kind of took the place of what I was doing when I was playing live so much. Mm -hmm. And I love teaching. Amazing. I just, I, I couldn't be, I couldn't be luckier to be in a position where uh, every week I get to help people fall in love with the guitar. It's just a wonderful thing. And then anytime, it, like over the last two, three weeks, I've had a chance to reconnect with uh, friends from the era and um, from 20 years ago and stuff like that and it's just been great you were like the third person that i've had a chance to reconnect with mm -hmm. and it, it's i'm very fortunate i'm just very fortunate that people still uh contact me to say hi i always appreciated every gig that i had and the fact that people showed up and had a good time and you know it's just it's a gift it's the gift that keeps on giving because then like Years, years later, I get to reconnect and mm -hmm. have great conversations with friends. So I have an incredible piece of Jamie Room trivia that um, I was able to corroborate that uh, from your story today about how you mentioned in 93 you went to go see Jurassic Park. That mm -hmm. same year you began to play the guitar, and you once upon told me the first song that you learned how to play on guitar was Aerosmith's... Do you remember the song? Living on the Edge! Oh, that's amazing! <laughs> That's a great I tell people I tell people all the time who I teach that, you know, I started when there was no internet, essentially. Like, people weren't doing things on the internet yeah, yeah. Uh, well, not with regards to yeah. music or anything. It was still a couple years away. And uh, I used to buy magazines that would have songs in them. Really? And they, they would have the tablature of how to play the song in the magazine. Wow. Uh, and they'd include the bass line. So if you bought a magazine, you could learn possibly up to five songs and then give the magazine to your buddy who's playing bass and he could learn them too. This is like early, early, early days. That's super uh, cool. It was super cool because the first magazine had Living on the Edge in it and Spoon Man and it had a Metallica Black Album special and a Soundgarden Super Unknown pre-release special. You're really going to like this lick. This wow. song's in a different tuning. Those things were absolutely crucial to me falling in love with guitar. I know that I've tried to play uh, Living on the Edge for you a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some people look like, what are you doing? Uh, that's that's a strange song to play. And then, you know, who cares? Okay. Just play it because somebody <laughs> likes it. Yeah, well, that was uh, an incredibly important song in my development. It's a dynamite song, period. I love that song. Um, Shelly, speaking of um, trying to play things and do stuff out loud and, and things like that and how they turn out in front of audiences, I remember, and we'll leave it on this note, um, one of our greatest memories Shelly and I have uh, of playing, well, because so many really good ones, but this is the funniest one because we got some really powerful ones that we had with you. But um, <laughs> the funniest one was when, I forget why, but we decided that if you changed all of the, the lyrics from you to poo and then you performed a song, that it would be funny. And it was. And so it you, was. you performed what I like about you uh, as what, 
<laughs> what I like about Pooh. And it was a riot. There was just us at the front of the room. There's nobody at the pub. And then people started walking in. And the gusto that you were giving it really went down a notch. Because <laughs> because it was it was fairly embarrassing <laughs> to get into uh, what I like about Pooh, Pooh, Pooh. Yeah, I remember looking over to my right. That was a big dicks pub. <laughs> Uh, and I remember looking at people walking in and I'm going, yeah, I should probably just dial this down. <laughs> dial this down just a touch with the poo. It's, it was what really... do you like about poo? You really know how to dance. What? You, you were committed. Dance? You were halfway through it. And then you had second, uh, second thoughts <laughs> visibly, but it was, it was amazing. Yeah. What yeah. a showman. Lot. Lots and lots and lots of good times, and uh, so many of those people from those uh, those times are still still around, and uh, it's great to be able to reconnect. It's it's just an awesome feeling. Mm-hmm. Feels like I did some stuff right. Oh, for sure. You know, I believe you. you. Know, good karma. Good karma. Well, everyone, uh, please join me in thanking Jamie Rubin for joining us on the Jurassic Park cast. This week's chapter is skeleton. Pages spanning from from 42 to 48. In a synopsis, Alice Levin's X-ray of the biting lizard shocks Grant and Ellie, who diagnose it as a procomsignathus, and consider if it's a hoax or a rediscovery, before Hammond calls to invite them to inspect his new island. Plot points. We learn a bit more about velociraptors thanks to Grant's discovery, and Grant and Ellie review the X-ray of the, quote, partially masticated Basiliscus amaratus with three-toed anomaly from earlier. They consider if it's a hoax, but are convinced it's not because A, the X-ray image is correct, B, X-rays are almost impossible to fake, and C, Procomsignathus is an obscure animal. It's also unlikely a, quote, rediscovery because it's way too old, 220 million years old, to have gone entirely unnoticed in both the fossil record and biosphere. Most, quote, rediscoveries are only unknown for a couple thousand years, not 220 million. Hammond calls to invite them to the park and appears distracted by the new specimen. We have some great characters. Ellie Sattler. Ellie's working the acid baths, being careful and attentive to her duties on page 42, removing limestone from infant dinosaur bones. She glances at the x-ray and asks if Grant believes it's an amasicus. Her first thought is the x-ray is a hoax on page 44. Ellie helps Grant make sense of the x-ray, considering that this could be a rediscovery, positing that sharks and crocodiles are basically Triassic animals that live in the present. Ellie consents that Hammond is upset after hearing about the Procomsignathus over the phone. They find Hammond is so upset, they think, geez, maybe we should see if this Morris guy is still here, which, which he isn't. And note, she is not called a doctor at any point again. Alan Grant. Alan receives a call from Alice Levin on page 42. He's positively identified, no questions about identity, a never-before-seen infant velociraptor by its jaw and dentition. Grant believes there must be evidence of smaller carnivores in the area, but they haven't found any. But perhaps their luck is turning, thanks to this new velociraptor specimen. One of Grant's dreams is to study infant-rearing behavior in carnivorous dinosaurs, as he has already studied the behavior of herbivores. Perhaps uncovering this velociraptor is the first step toward that dream. Upon looking at the x-rays, he's awestruck. It could be a masochist or a triassicist, he considers. As a specialist like sojourning Dr. Simpson, he's able to identify this thing pretty quickly as not a lizard. No three-toed lizard has walked this planet for 200 million years, he says on page 44. Upon diagnosing the specimen as a Procomsignathus, the description says it bit a little girl. 
but Grant can't believe that a presumed scavenger was preying on subjects that, that much larger than itself. Grant expects Levin to be calling back, but is surprised to find Hammond on the line. He rarely passes judgment on people so far, but here he describes Hammond as eccentric. Grant resists Hammond's invitation to visit Isla Nublar, but the financial contributions he and Sattler will earn convince him to join in. Grant, too, consents Hammond's shift in attitude upon hearing about the Procom Signathus. Alice Levin. She sends an X-ray to Grant after leaving a message asking for help identifying a lizard specimen. And that's kind of the last we hear about her. John Hammond. Described privately by Grant as still as eccentric as ever, he has a quick-speaking, raspy voice and inquires about Bob Morris and his inquiries into the Hammond Foundation. He's got a lot of common vernacular to him. Not really speaking the king's English, if you catch my drift. He's only just got on the phone, and he's already saying, smartass, hell of a time, hell of a problem, damn bureaucracy, hell, I think the kid's trying to get down to Costa Rica. That's on page 46. Perhaps he's trying to relate to the common man, or he's too rich to be troubled with being polite among the common man, or perhaps he just meant to come across as eccentric. But if his narrative tone dipped any further, you'd start to think that he had the vocabulary of a sailor or a trucker. Hammond has mailed Grant some materials about the island, but Grant has not yet received it. And then to compel Grant to join them, he says a line from the movie, I know you'd find it right up your alley, on page 47. Which isn't exactly how actor Richard Attenborough says it in the film, which is more, it's right up your alley. Yes, it's over the phone, and not an in-person visit, and no, Hammond probably didn't have a delightful and mesmerizing received pronunciation from his British accent, but... It was swaying all the same because now Hammond has a cheery persistence of an old man on page 47. And he says he'd never interrupt Grant's work. Never. Except stop what you're doing and come over here. Upon hearing about the living Procompsignathid, Hammond's tone markedly shifts. And he is suspiciously able to repeat Grant's incredible claim right away. If you aren't familiar with the word Procompsignathid, and someone just blurted it out of the blue right at you over the phone, you think you'd repeat it correctly? Suspicious. He's very curious and concerned about that specimen. Hammond sort of comes clean after hearing about the living specimen on page 48. He admits to problems and delays at the resort, and he's under a, quote, little pressure. He says that he needs the consultants to sign off on the facilities, and he's willing to pay $20,000 per day, up to $60,000 for the three days for both Grant and another 60000 for Sattler to inspect his resort. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm, the mathematician in Texas, is whom Hammond presumes Grant has heard of, and he was visited by Bob Morris the other day. We have a couple localities, Snakewater, Montana, South Hill, Horizon 4 is where the infant velociraptor specimen is located on page 43. We have a fossil where you can see the jaw and complete dentition, and potentially it's fully articulated, and that's how it's described on page 43. It may be two or four months old at most, and it's definitely a velociraptor. Hammond describes his island resort as, oh, four or five years in the making, though he, quote, forgets exactly. But it's a big island covered in tropical jungle, a hundred miles offshore, intended to be a biological preserve. It's to be open next year. Chateau is a Montana locality where Hammond has a private jet waiting for Sattler and Grant to ferry them to California before connecting to Costa Rica and Isla Nublar. It's two hours drive from Snakewater, and their flight is at 5 p.m., I would guess, GMT. We got lots of dinosaurs in this chapter. Hadrosaurs. Hadrosaurs are revealed to be like buffalo, roaming in vast grazing herds across the Cretaceous Plains in groups of 10 or 20,000. 
The predator-prey ratio is 1 to every 400, based on African and Indian game park models. So 10,000 hadrosaurs, therefore, yield only 25 tyrannosaurs, according to that math, which means finding predator fossils would be equally scarce compared to prey. Dromaeosaurs. However, smaller predators should present themselves in the fossil record more readily. Grant believes animals like Dromaeosaurus, Oviraptor, Velociraptor, and Saluras, spanning from three to six feet long, were egg-eating predators that should have been found in great abundance. But note here that we have Saluras positively identified as a carnivorous predator, and that may come up again later in the tour chapter of the book. Procomsignathus grants consideration of the specimen being either an Amasicus or a Triassicus is a bit dubious. There is no Amasicus species, though Procomsignathus Triassicus is a thing. Procomsignathus is a late Triassic Coelophysid found in Bavaria in 1909. The x-ray shows a three-toed foot with a well-balanced and medial claw. The bony remnants of the fourth and fifth toes were located up near the metatarsal joint. The tibia was strong and considerably longer than the femur. At the hip, the acetabulum was complete. The tail showed 45 vertebrae. That's all on page 44. It was so small and light we assume it must be a scavenger only feeding off dead creatures. And you can tell the size. It's about 20 centimeters to the hips, which means the full animal would have been about a foot tall, about as big as a chicken. Even a child would look pretty fearsome to it. It might bite an infant, but not a child, thinks Grant. The mention of this critter changes Hammond's demeanor on the phone. And note, Procomsignathus is whatever the finger version of a tongue twister is, because I cannot type it. Paleontology. Dinosaurs died out in the Cretaceous period 65 million years ago. They flourished as the dominant life forms on the planet in the Jurassic 190 million years ago, and first appeared in the Triassic 220 million years ago. That's set on page 45. It was during the early Triassic period that Crocomsignathus had lived, a time so distant that our planet didn't even look the same. All the continents were joined together in a single landmass called Pangaea, which extended from the north to the south pole, a vast continent of ferns and forest with a few large deserts. The Atlantic Ocean was a narrow lake between what would become Africa and Florida. The air was denser, the land warmer, there were hundreds of active volcanoes, and it was in this environment that Procomsignathus lived. In this chapter, we get a, a lot of different allusions and references, which is kind of neat, which uh, places the story in the, in the greater world. Uh, the first is Piltdown Man. The most famous hoax to biologists is the Piltdown Man, we're told on page 44, who went undetected for 40 years, and its perpetrator remains unknown. This is an apt example. Even if it's not terribly familiar any longer, it was very famous in scientific circles. Quote, discovered in 1912 by Charles Dawson, an amateur archaeologist, it was proposed to be a 500,000-year-old human ancestor. Charles Dawson made the discovery in his late 40s, and over the years, many of his archaeological and paleontological discoveries have been exposed as frauds, including a 2016 review of the Piltdown Man, which he is now blamed for. There you go. Rediscoveries like the coelocanth is another illusion. An example of a rediscovery, it was a five-foot-long fish believed to be extinct 60 million years until rediscovered. And that's described on page 44 and 45. But rediscovered in 1938. The Australian mountain pygmy possum and a New Guinean fruit bat are also rediscoveries. Archaeopteryx. Distinguished astronomer Fred Hoyle claimed that Archaeopteryx's incredible fossil was a hoax, though it was later proven to be genuine on page 44. And if you haven't seen it, check out the Archaeopteryx Berlin specimen. It's one of the coolest fossils of all time. Fred Hoyle, a distinguished astronomer who believed the Archaeopteryx specimen was a fake. Fred Hoyle was also a science fiction writer 
and outspoken academic who preferred the steady state theory to the Big Bang theory and believed the abiogenesis theory that life came to Earth rather than originated here. A controversial fellow, but frankly, science should be about questioning everything you know, improving your arguments. Except for when we need answers. Then it's just, give me the answer, science. Come on. You're supposed to know this stuff. And the real Procomsignathus, not the one we're getting in the book here, the type material for Procomsignathus is based upon postcranial remains, SMNS 12591, housed at the Stachlich Museum für Naturkund in Stuttgart, Germany. It was identified to not be a true theropod, but a very primitive saurischian, likening it to a coelophysis, known from New Mexico, or Segesaurus, known from Arizona. As a coelophysoid, it would have had a relatively small size, chicken size, flourishing in the late Triassic and early Jurassic, and they're characterized by their long, slender skulls and light skeletons built for speed. It's known from fragmentary skull, cervicals, 14 dorsal, and 13 caudal vertebrae, both pubes, a fragment from the ischium, a right hind limb, some left tibia, left radius, ulna, and partial manus, and the right scapular coracoid. So is counting the number of tail vertebrae really a diagnostic tool for confirming this is a procomsignathus? No, not in real life. And next chance we get to speak with a paleontologist, I imagine we can ask to what end counting tail vertebrae is a diagnostic tool at all. And my hunch is that it's not a great indicator as entire tails are likely difficult to fossilize and recover. We have different stylistic techniques that Crichton has continued to employ. We have more use of ellipses. Crichton uses ellipses to show gaps in his conversation over the phone, effectively simulating us hearing only one side of a telephone conversation on page 42, and while Grant speaks with Hammond, too, on page 45. And they use while Ellie is reading a note as well on page 44, indicating that we're pausing, waiting, while she reads the letter. We have more italics. Crichton has Grant remark, Oh, what?! and shows Grant's disbelief and astonishment over her message on page, uh, Alice Levin's message on page 42. Italics are also used in common use in scientific papers where the genus and species names of an animal is italicized, like Dromaeosaurus, Oviraptor, Velociraptor, and Silurus. And Crichton does that again here, even though this is not an academic paper, on page 43. And he does it as well with Procomsignathus and Triassicus, and as well as Amasicus and Archaeopteryx. Crichton slyly employs italics to indicate that Ellie and Grant are silently mouthing words to one another so as not to be heard on the call with Hammond. What's going on? Sounds upset. See if Morris is still here. That's pretty neat. They're speaking in secret, and we almost feel like we're whispering while we read it. I like that. Uh, and he employs some M dashes. There are common instances where M dashes are used in place of parentheses, which may be a formal stylistic form required by the publishing house. Novels commonly resist using numerals, like spelling out 65 million on page 45 in their printing, and perhaps parentheses are another stylistic no-no. In any case, any comments presented between M dashes are to be read in continuity with the present sentence that's being stated as if they were in parentheses, but it's uh, just a different tool. The M dash is also used to indicate a spontaneous entrance or exit from a conversation, as in when Grant activates the speakerphone and we enter into Hammond's conversation in mid-sentence on page 46. The M dash ends a series of Grant sentences as well, as he's resisting Hammond's invitation to the island, but Hammond keeps cutting him off on the same page and continuing on in page 47. As for literary techniques, we have some rhetorical questions, like, where were the predators? On page 43, Crichton uses the rhetorical question to broach a subject upon which he aims to continue pontificating. And this is an excellent application to suggest that perhaps there isn't a straight answer to the rhetorical question, but suggests, rather, that it's something to ponder. 
And again, but where were the smaller predators is another example, and together, these are instances where this literary device is employed to demonstrate the character of Dr. Grant. Grant pontificates on the subject, characterizing Grant's approach to paleontology, while welcoming us as readers to consider the riddle as well. We have continued motifs like responsibility and safety. This is a continuing theme on the concept of responsibility more closely considered around supervision. Here, we have Hammond furious that there's this kid, Bob Morris, with the EPA, who's, quote, gone off half-cocked all on his own, running around the country talking to people, stirring things up, on page 46. And furthermore, Hammond believes it's, quote, typical of the way governments operate. There isn't any complaint. There isn't any charge. Just harassment from some kid who's unsupervised and running around at the taxpayer's expense. Here, Hammond, who is operating as outlined in the introduction, is a capitalist in an unregulated biomolecular industry, and he's upset with a watchdog who might be checking in on whether his use of biotech is ethical or not. Remember, the introduction warns that the whimsical use of biotechnology should concern us all because it can have a catastrophic consequence to the face of the planet. Remember, you cannot recall a new species, and sharing the planet makes us all stakeholders to the consequences. In any case, here's... Here, in any case, here, there's an irony that Hammond is furious that someone might be operating without proper protocols going about half-cocked and unsupervised because he's desperate to continue pursuing his whimsical use of biotechnology, free from supervision from watchdogs and ethicists. Hammond's final words to Grant and Sattler are, pack lightly, you won't need passports, on page 48, which sort of shows that international rules and boundaries and protocols are completely unobserved by Hammond. Heroes and villains. Remember, our heroes are dreamers who perceive the world with a sense of wonder, responsibility, and pursue answers, whereas the villains are argumentative jerks who shirk responsibility and refuse to see the bigger picture and take action, but not stock up the consequences. Hammond's looking to stop the EPA from investigating his island, calls the youngster names, and is profoundly troubled by the mention of a new species of lizard discovered in Costa Rica, not someone who seems interested in taking stock of the consequences. It's early, but already Crichton is associating Hammond with villainy. In further discussion, let's talk about Hammond's ironic comments on characters. Beginning in this chapter, Hammond appears to have specific comments on people, and ironically, the characteristics he continues to describe, he appears unaware that they also describe him. For example, in this chapter, he's complaining about Bob Morris going around all half-cocked without supervision and causing trouble on page 46. However, this is exactly why Hammond is operating in South America, because he can run around all half-cocked without supervision and consequentially clone dinosaurs in an unsafe zoo environment. Let's talk a bit more about paleontology. So Grant is uncovering an infant velociraptor, and his hopes are uncovering a fully articulated skeleton, which has never been found before on page 31. I'm initially urged to think... This is the first infant carnivore ever found, but that's not quite what's being qualified by Crichton here. He's saying this is the first fully articulated skeleton of an infant carnivore. That said, positively identifying a bone, for example, as a jawbone and, and teeth, I'd say is entirely doable out in the field. But positively identifying a juvenile specimen from a bone still trapped in rock, I'd argue, is much more difficult. Positively identifying a, the genus of an infant specimen by only the jawbone and teeth that's wizard-level clairvoyance. The Grant says that this is, quote, definitely a velociraptor on page 43 from the remains is good for us because it allows Crichton to share details about what velociraptors were really like, but it's entirely implausible to definitely identify a critter from such a tiny fragment without significantly greater context while it's still trapped in the rock, I would imagine. 
I'm not a paleontologist, nor have I found a velociraptor in the rock. Costly digging. When Hammond offers up $120,000 to Grant and Sattler for three days' work to inspect the island, Grant says that much money would fund their work for the next two summers on page 48. However, on page 35, Grant just told Morris that they were receiving $30,000 per year for the past five years from the Hammond Foundation. So the per annum cost for the past five years was $30,000, but the next two years will be $60,000 each. Like, I guess that'd be pretty rad because you can afford those damned helicopters you need to charter to, to haul massive blocks of solid rock back to civilization. But frankly, it just is inconsistent in Creighton's writing. Child of the 80s. Another brilliant feature of this book is it doesn't feel out of date. In our modern fangled world of high-tech everything, apps, mobility, internet connectivity, this novel has none of that, but also doesn't seem to be lacking any of it either. In few instances do we think, bah, that'd never happen now because of our modern ways drawing us out of the fantasy Crichton has created. But this chapter gives us a fun little throwback to yesteryear as the lonely fax machine makes its appearance on page 42. But it still doesn't feel out of place in that you'd surely not have wireless reception out in the badlands of Snakewater, Montana, anyhow. We have some more observations to include in our portrayal of women. Again, let's just catalog what's said about women, and we can review and analyze it by the end of the novel. In this chapter, Ellie Sattler is again given very close physical attention. She brushes blonde hair from her face, always mentioning how she looks. Nobody else has their hair described. Hoaxes are omnipresent. There's something to be said for the idea of hoaxes, and the concept is raised specifically in this chapter on page 44. Ellie says the threat of hoaxes, even ingenious, skillful hoaxes, is omnipresent. The essence of a successful hoax was that it presented scientists with what they expected to see. That's what she says on page 44. That this concept is introduced along with Hammond in the same chapter is important, more than a coincidence. Hammond is going to be presenting the park as a safe moneymaker, that it's perfectly fine, and he's going to show the experts exactly what they expect to see. Jurassic Park is perpetrating a hoax, and it's written that way. As we meet Hammond and Regis, we'll see that these are manipulative men, working to show you what you want to see, and distracting you from what they don't want you to see. They're running a hoax, and that hoax is that Jurassic Park is safe for the public. Timeline. We're given a firm date here that Tina Bowman was bit on July 16th. Grant and Ellie are whisked away to Costa Rica on Hammond's aircraft at the end of August, so this mystery and the lizard bites that we know are going underreported, if reported at all, has been running for more than a month now. I always felt that the infant that dies under Elena Morales' care at the Bahia Anasco Clinic is the same that was about to give birth at the beginning of the novel in The Bite of the Raptor, but we come to find out that the construction worker's death was in January, Regis calls it the January incident on page 96, and then that Tina Bowman's lizard attack is in July and the baby that dies in the bassinet after the insufficient toxicology report from the TDL is after that. So, it's reasonable to consider that those are two different babies, what with the timing being many months apart. But just the way the story is written, it was somewhat natural to think that the expecting mother in the first chapter was the mother of the victim at the end of Act 1, but it almost certainly wouldn't have been. Maybe I was the only person who misinterpreted that, but the numbers suggest that it's a new mother, a new baby, but the same midwife. In terms of due diligence, the green lizard specimen's x-ray has been faxed to Grant's dig site. So now there's a fax of the x-ray in Montana, and the specimen remains at the TDL. And then the, I believe the saliva samples are still in San Jose, Costa Rica. The MacGuffin. Just when you thought the case was closed on the partially masticated basilisk lizard with the three-toed anomaly at the wishes of Dr. Stone, 
Alice Levin resurrects it like that singing, dancing frog from Looney Tunes, and it makes a triumphant return to a fascinated new audience. Now presented to Grant via fax, rather than to the Natural History Museum ten minutes down the road, Levin has unleashed a bloodhound on the case, and once Hammond catches breath of it, his entire demeanor changes. The MacGuffin has raised the stakes and continues to propel our protagonists to go to the island. Building a mystery. What's new to the mystery? Well, this new rediscovery can't possibly exist. It doesn't make any sense, but it's apparently by the diagnostic quantity of tail vertebrae, confirmed to be a procomsignathus. But where did it come from? Why does it make Hammond change his attitude so quickly? What's the rush with visiting the island? The mystery is growing. And now we've got a true paleontological detective on the case, Dr. Grant. That sums up our analysis of the text from this chapter, Skeleton. Thanks to my guest today, Jamie Rayum. He's a musical genius, a captivating showman, and someone I can say I was proud to have perform at my wedding. I hope you've enjoyed having him this episode as much as I have. I want to sign off today by thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Parkcast is a part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. For me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also about that too.